Today's reading from the book of Ezra is from chapter 7, starting at verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold, in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of Trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest the teacher of the law of the God of heaven may ask of you up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, 
and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. We thank the Lord for his word to us today. Well, it's great to be able to continue in our series uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is an eight-week series, and today is uh, week three. So we're, we're tracking through the book of Ezra and then the book of Nehemiah. Today we're looking at chapters seven and eight of the book of Ezra. But my first question today is uh, a bit of a tricky one. Should Christians obey the government? Just to start with something light. Um, this has been a hot topic over, well, centuries really, let's be honest, but particularly over the last couple of years, the, the COVID pandemic and new laws have, have made this a, a very fraught question, I think. And, and people have taken, Christians have taken different paths on this question to do with some laws. Should, should people choose not to wear masks when the rules say it should, they, should be, they should be worn? Or sometimes people have chosen to go out and about when there's been a lockdown. It's a tricky question. Should we obey the government and in what areas? I I am confident amongst this room there are a range of views on this tricky question and particularly with those watching on the video as well, there'll be a range of perspectives. But this is what comes together today in our reading, so we're going to consider it. It's tricky as well because you get in the Bible, you get different sort of passages on this stuff, don't you? You get verses like this from Acts chapter 5 where Peter says to authorities, we must obey God rather than human beings. But then, for example, in the book of Romans, we read this from the Apostle Paul, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Tricky to navigate our way through, but we'll have a look at this today. And this will be our lens. How do God's people live in Ezra, and also how do we live under foreign or secular rule? All right, well, let's look at our text for today. Chapter 7, as we've moved from Ezra 1 to 6, chapter 7 begins with quite a time gap from the end of chapter 6. Um, the verse is, after these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, um, but it's a big gap. Uh, chapter 6 ends about 515 or 516 BC, and chapter 7 begins at 458 BC. So it's about 67-ish years later. It's a little, just a little throwaway phrase at the start of chapter 7, but... As you read through Ezra, you'll notice that's a 67-year time gap that's just been recorded. And we start by getting introduced to Ezra, who's the hero of the book. We've sort of read six chapters without even reading his name yet, but finally we're introduced to him. And he's a very interesting character. He's both a priest and a scribe, uh, which is important. The priest's main role um, in ancient Israel was temple duties, particularly animal sacrifice. But of course, in Babylon, there was no temple. So that, that actually been unable to do the main part of their job, the priests. And so during the exile period, the role of these new characters, the scribes, became really important. Scribes were all about the word, about understanding the Bible, teaching it, re- rewriting it, copying it, and helping people understand how to live. The role of the scribes in the absence of a temple became important. The people in Babylon would have had some records of God's word from earlier books in the Bible, Uh, And Ezra would have been one of those who helped 
the people in exile to understand how do you live this out? How does this work in today's world? But now as he's preparing to go to Jerusalem, you can imagine his priestly training would have started to be kicking in. He'd be thinking, oh, this is fantastic. At last I'll actually be at the temple and able to do some of those things I've been trained to do. So as a leader, he's that ideal crossover, isn't he? He's, he's the scribe and he's also the priest as he moves from Babylon over to Jerusalem. And he's well regarded among the people. This is his commendation at the start of chapter 7. He was a teacher, well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And we read also, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. But the important thing here is that Ezra's return to Jerusalem wasn't just a personal decision. Being exiled in Babylon, he didn't just think, oh, I'd love to make a trip. It was to do with a king's decree. He receives this letter, this commission from King Artaxerxes, which we just heard read out. And Ezra's given these kind of four tasks in this commission. I'll go through them very briefly. Firstly, he's to lead a return, a group of exiles. Take with you a group of exiles who are willing to go. Secondly, he's to inquire about Judah, the land he's going to, regarding the law of God. It says, you are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Now, it's not exactly clear what King Artaxerxes had in mind here, uh, but it's a good chance to remember the kings of Persia have invested a lot into these returns, time and money. They're really investing in loyalty and stability in Judah. They want a people in that land, that's a political buffer between them and Egypt, who are on their side and who are well equipped to become a people group under their umbrella. So I wonder if the king was a bit concerned. There'd been some riffraff perhaps in Jerusalem. Maybe there were a few temple processes that weren't being kept. And he thought, I'll send Ezra. Ezra will help straighten them out. Thirdly, he's given all these gifts for the temple. I won't read this out, but you would have heard in the, the reading from Jan, amazing quantities of gifts, gold and silver, and also the the right to access even more supplies if they needed it. Gifts for the temple, treasures and wealth. Like the first king we read about in, in Ezra 1, um, Artaxerxes, like Cyrus, is very generous to the returnees, giving them heaps and heaps of fortunes for the rebuilding of Israel. Now, the fourth part of his commission is to appoint judges and magistrates and to teach Jews who live in this broad swathe of the Persian kingdom. <clears throat> Again, I think the goal here for the king is stability. He wants this people group, the Jewish people, scattered between Babylon and, and now into Jerusalem, to be stable. He wants them to be consistent, to follow the law of the land, and also to follow the law of their God. Ezra's whole reason for this travel is a royal commission, to use that phrase. Now, he's not complaining here. He doesn't complain. He actually celebrates it. He thinks, what an honoured position I've been given. But it's still in obedience to the king to fulfil this decree. And I want to really hone in on this, particularly this last part of his direction. Ezra was called to administer the laws of God and the laws of the king. I'll read these verses. Uh, chapter seven, twenty-five. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all those who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. 
Ezra's role is to appoint leaders, kind of sub-delegates, to administer the law in this section of, uh, uh, called Trans-Euphrates, really anything from the Euphrates in, in Babylon all the way across to Israel itself, a large swathe of the Persian kingdom. And he's to teach the laws of God to those who don't know them. And there's this implied statement, that last sentence, about punishment for disobedience. It's not completely explicit, but it's implied that these leaders, these Jewish leaders that Ezra will appoint, are to ensure both God's law and the national law are followed. Just think about this situation that this puts Ezra in, just for a moment. He's to arrange the administration of the laws of God and the laws of the king. Again, Artaxerxes probably wanted all the Jews to be on the same page for stability. Maybe they were flouting some laws of the land. And so he's thinking, look, if some respected Jewish leaders are administering these laws, maybe they'll kind of shape up and follow them as they ought to. This is a pretty tough role, I reckon, for Ezra, and a really tough role for the people that he would appoint to these roles. Imagine if one of the Jewish people in this area, just picture them, if they broke one of the king's laws, not one of God's laws in the Torah, but one of the king's laws, they were speeding on their donkey or something. (laughs) You can think, he would then have to administer the punishment for that breaking of the law. But I also reckon Ezra's the man for the job. If anyone can work this out, it's Ezra. He's a scribe. He's grown up in Babylon. He's, he's gone through how do you live God's way and also live under the king. He's had to wrestle with this for his whole life. And now he's in a place where he actually has to administer it to others. But this raises a big question for us, doesn't it? How do we follow both God's law and the law of the land in our context? Well, I want to suggest our situation is a bit similar to Ezra. In Australia, we don't live in a theocracy. Uh, for a period of Jewish history, they lived in a theocracy where the law of God was the law of the land. Those two were completely linked. I'm thinking about the time of the kings and the judges when they first arrived in the land and they had control of that land for themselves. That was a theocracy. And there's some theocracies today as well. Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, the Holy Roman Empire, which was a, a Christian theocracy, the, the, the last part of the Roman Empire. Countries where religion and state are so tightly connected, it's really the same thing. But we don't live in a theocracy. We live as Christian people in a secular state. It's very similar to Ezra. He was answerable to the king of Persia, even while he had freedom to worship God. And the other good news is it's very similar to the New Testament as well. Very similar to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the first Christians lived under Roman rule. And they had to work through this puzzle too. How do you be faithful to God when you're also under the authority of the Roman emperor? And the other good thing about this is, because that was the situation, there's lots of good New Testament teaching about this. The New Testament writers, they had to wrestle with this challenge. How do you live as God's people in a secular state? And so we've got some good teaching we can look at too. I want to consider three examples briefly. The first one is from Jesus. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar, something that all good people within the Roman world had to do. He firstly challenges his accusers about their own devotion to God, but he ends with this famous line, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We also get teaching about this from from Paul in Romans 13. Paul writes about obeying authorities. He writes this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that 
which God has established. And he, he ends, he actually kind of echoes Jesus' words here as he ends this section. He says, this is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If they owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And the, the third passage, which I think is really helpful, is in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter also encourages his readers to submit to human authorities. And he, he also finishes with this famous line, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. I find it helpful when I'm thinking about this kind of thing to remember that at this time, the authority in the New Testament was Roman dictators. This wasn't a democracy with freedom, opportunities for lobbying, freedom of press, fair elections. No, it was autocracy. And yet, even in the case of autocracy, incredibly enough, Jesus, Paul and Peter all say, obey the laws, submit to the government and I think paying taxes is a good example of this. It comes up a couple of times because we can get frustrated about where our taxes go. I sometimes get frustrated about where my taxes go. You've probably had similar feelings to this. You can get frustrated. And it can be different things that frustrate different people. Maybe it's excessive military spending. Maybe that's a frustration of yours. Maybe it's funding certain medical procedures that take place. Maybe it's certain mining projects or, or trade deals that happen. Again, it's going to be different for everyone. And we might think, I'm not going to pay that rubbish. I'm not going to support those kind of things. I'm not going to pay my taxes. It's good to think about where Roman taxes would have gone to, the taxes that Jesus and Paul were encouraging the Christians to pay. A large majority of it would have gone to war, to war against innocent neighbouring tribes. As the Roman Empire expanded and consolidated, they, had a lot, they needed a lot of money for their army. And yet, incredibly... Jesus and Paul say, pay your taxes. But isn't there a line? Isn't there a, isn't there a point where we say, no, enough is enough. I'm not going to follow that from the government. I'm not obeying. Well, there is a line. And I think the best example of this is Peter. Peter who writes in his letter, obey the authorities, submit to the authorities that are put over you. He also sometimes doesn't do it. And it's good to see where it happens. There's a great example in Acts. In two chapters in Acts, very similar situation. Peter and other apostles, they're hauled before the authorities for telling people about Jesus. And in both chapters, he responds, he cannot obey. So here's from chapter 4. They called them, that's the disciples, in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's very similar in Acts chapter 5. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Peter is not arrested for failing to pay his taxes or you know, public vandalism or something here. He's arrested for telling people about Jesus. This is why, and this is why he refuses to obey. So what about us? Where does the rubber hit the road for us? Well, I find there's a really helpful principle. It's not my principle. I can't take credit for it, but it's excellent as Christians when we think about whether to obey laws or not. It is this. There are two cases where civil disobedience is necessary, where the government forbids what God commands or where government commands 
what God forbids. Just have a think about that for a moment. Maybe you can think of some situations where these might come into play. I think they're fairly narrow categories, to be honest, because mostly the government commands us to do things that God doesn't forbid. Paying car rego, you know, being clothed in public, following traffic lights, those kind of things. Or the government allows freedom in areas where we have much clearer direction from God. So, for example, adultery is not against the law, but it's not God's way to live. Drunkenness is not against the law, but it's not God's way to live. Paul has a great line about this, about the freedom we have, even as we're called to follow God. Uh, When he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I can guarantee you're not going to be arrested for showing too much gentleness or too much kindness. And that's true for our law in Australia, isn't it? There's no laws against any of these. And most of the time in the world, actually, there's, there's no clash. But these, these do come up, these civil disobedience principles. They do come up. And today, in many countries around the world, countries like China or North Korea or Iran, it's illegal for Christians to share about Jesus with the national people. They don't have that freedom. Just like Peter, they would be hauled before the authorities. And yet, over years, over decades, even now, many pastors and missionaries and evangelists are disobeying the government in those countries and obeying God's call to go and make disciples of all nations. Just like Peter, they have chosen to do what God commands, which the government forbids. Well, what about in Australia? Is this the case in Australia? Look, people will disagree on this, but to my best understanding, it is not. We certainly can tell people about Jesus without fear of arrest. And I certainly don't know myself of any example where the call for civil disobedience is triggered. I tend to follow these kind of things fairly closely, and I don't think there's any examples of this yet. Let me put some caveats on that. Sometimes we need to be really careful with our words. We need to be really careful. Sometimes we need to be creative in the way that we follow God's call in our lives. And look, maybe one day these principles will be activated in Australia and we will need to obey God rather than the government. But I don't believe we're there yet. While I say this though, let me also be really clear. Living as God's people in a secular state can still be really hard. It can still be really hard. We can feel social pressure and temptation to conform to values around us. The media is not always going to be fair to Christians. And leaders will sometimes make remarks that are unhelpful. Even if there's not particularly a law that we need to disobey to follow God, it can still be very hard to live in a secular state as a follower of Jesus. Please hear that. But it doesn't necessarily mean we start disobeying laws. We can presently obey the laws of this land and faithfully obey God. And like I said, if you see things differently to me, that's okay. Uh, And I'm always happy to chat with people after if you like. I want to see one more thing that Ezra does, which I think is really important. As he goes, as we get chapter 7, we have the commission from the king. But chapter 8 has these two parts. If you read Ezra chapter 8, the first is a list of names of all the people who come with him, the family groups. The second part details the journey Ezra takes. And it particularly details one stop. And I encourage you to read Ezra 8 if you get the chance. They stop at a place called Ahava. And the group gathers, and the the passage then focuses on Ezra's realisation that there are no Levites in the group. He's got this big bunch of volunteers who are all coming back with him. There's no Levites in the group. And so 
Ezra actually gets Levites from another city in Babylon, where they were also in exile, to come along, to join the group. It delays the journey, but he gets his Levites. What's the point of this? It seems unnecessary, this stop and this whole business. Because there were already Levites in Jerusalem. There were actually a bunch of them that were already there. There were 74 of them on the first return. They, they would have had their own families, of course. Uh, so there'd probably be even more Levites already in Jerusalem. Why does he need Levites with this second return? Well, it's because Levites had a special role. They, they mainly did practical duties in the temple. And this included careful transportation. <laughs> I'll read, this is from Numbers chapter 10. We read about two Levite tribes whose role was to carry the holy things as the, the people moved. This is back in the wilderness times. And the tabernacle was taken down and the Gershonites and Merorites who carried it set out. Now, this is the particular skill set that Ezra wants in his group, in his team that are returning. Once the Levites arrive in chapter 8, if you're reading this, you'll see Ezra entrusts them with all that wealth, all the gold and silver the king's given him. He entrusts it to the Levites. They are to, be, to make sure it gets to Jerusalem. It's, it's counted, it's entrusted. They all travel to Jerusalem, that's recorded. When they arrive, they count it out again, and it's all there. So they've done their job really well. You might wonder why this is recorded. Well, this shows how diligent and accountable Ezra is to the commission he's given. It's a big effort, isn't it, to make sure this wealth is properly administered. He's got to send people to another town to find Levites, convince them to come, count out the wealth, entrust it to them. Then he has to count it out again at the altar when they get back to Jerusalem, just to make sure nobody's kind of dipped into the pile of gold on the journey. You might think, why the effort? It sounds, it sounds exhausting. But he's committed to being scrupulous, Ezra is, and above reproach. He wants to do right by the generosity of the king, so he goes above the call. I wonder what this might mean for us. Well, like Ezra, we live under secular authority, under government rule. And I want to suggest, like Ezra, we also should be scrupulous and accountable and diligent in how we can follow the government. See, I feel like a lot of the time, maybe, and I, I speak for myself here too, our disobedience to government isn't necessarily rebellion or a righteous stance. Sometimes it's, it's maybe laziness. Certainly true for me. Sometimes it's failing to see the point. I can be liable to this. It could be something like not following a traffic rule. I'm sure we've all felt that urge. It could be something like not declaring, you know, that tiny amount of bank interest as additional income. It's a bit of effort to put that on your tax return, isn't it? Maybe it's not sorting your recycling before it goes in the bin. A couple of plastic bags in there, they'll, they'll work it out down the line. But this can be true for bigger things too. It can be true for churches. We've got plenty of government requirements that we fulfil. There's an online red book process that ensures we're up to date with safety. Things like fire extinguishers, first aid kits, disability access. There's safe food processes. That's a bit laborious, but we're called to be scrupulous in that. And a big one that many of you will have come across, of course, is safe church processes. Creating safe spaces is the Baptist Union example. Many of you will have done a working with children check or done the training online. Uh, we have a church safe manual that our church has, which has, again, just been updated. Look, the training is long, isn't it? If you've done the training, it can be a bit tiring. Maybe some of it seems a bit obvious if you've, if you've gone through it. But we do it. And we do it for a few reasons. We, we do it because globally the church has had a poor record on safety. Uh, we do it because we, we love people and we want them to be safe at our church. And, and I'm thinking of Ezra here, we want to be diligent. We want to be accountable to the government processes and requirements. 
I'm not sure how you find all of this kind of discussion. You might think, oh, it's just red tape, isn't it? It's just bureaucrats kind of justifying their own job. Why do we need to do all this stuff? We're safe here. I, I understand this frustration. It is an understandable feeling. But have a think about what Ezra did. If he's our model, he didn't just say, ah, she'll be right. Just throw, all the, throw it all in this box and then we'll get it there. It'll get to, it'll get to Jerusalem somehow. Um, he didn't just grab some kind of layabout and go, can you be the money guy? Can you keep an eye on this? Now, he said, we need Levites. We need the experts at this. The people who are scrupulous, can count, can make sure it's safe. They will accompany this money. And it, it was a, a big process to make sure that happened. But he did it. He was diligent and accountable. The last thing I want to draw out of this passage as we finish is that Ezra was faithful to God. Ezra sees God's hand here. We see him throughout the passage, even as he's diligent to the government, even as he's faithful to his commission, he trusts God, he thanks God, and he sees God at work. Let me show you through the passages, you see this again and again. After getting the commission from the king, here's Ezra's response. He doesn't say, oh, great, now I've got to obey this guy, great. And he doesn't say, oh, king, you're the greatest, thank you so much. No, his response is turning to God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Even as he obeys the king he's, and is diligent and accountable, he turns in worship to God. He praises God. He sees God's hand at work. And as the people with the Levites prepare to travel, we get another example of his faith. It's a, another interesting example. It says, Here or there by the Ahava Canal, this is where they've paused, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So he fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. You might even read this and think, this seems almost a bit irresponsible of Ezra, not accepting that offer of an escort with all this wealth and this huge group. But he wanted to trust God in this, that God would give him a safe journey. And we see when that happens, again, he acknowledges God. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. And finally, as he arrives, his first response is worship. Once he's in Jerusalem, then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. For Ezra, his obedience to government and his faithfulness to God go hand in hand. He was accountable and diligent with the king's money. So what did he do? He used Levites, those who God has appointed to be trustworthy in financial matters. He received the king's commission, including this role in administering the king's laws and all the challenge that would have involved. And he saw God's hand at work. He says, God's been doing this. God's been guiding the king, guiding this process to allow this to happen. He travels at the king's orders. He fulfills his commission and he sees God has given us safe passage. His obedience to God and his obedience to the government go hand in hand. 
I wonder if we can have the same perspective. Even while we follow the government, can we see God's hand at work? It's easier when it's something we love, when we agree with, when we think is a good law, perhaps. But we need to remember God's always at work. God's always at work. I wonder when we follow safe food processes, can we see God's making us sure we don't get lazy and cause food poisoning? When we ensure our building safety is up to scratch, maybe we can see that God is working through this process to ensure crises are prevented or they're easily responded to. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Ezra is a wonderful example of this principle, I think. A man who fears God and he honours the authorities around him. Let me pray that we can learn from Ezra to do this well. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you this morning for the example of Ezra. I thank you for this man, scribe and priest, who was commended by the people for his faithfulness to you, for his understanding of your word and his ability to teach. I thank you that this was the man who led this second return of exiles, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for the way that he learnt to live in that tricky space under a secular authority while being faithful to you. We thank you for his example here that he saw your hand even at work in the king's decree. We saw that he was both faithful and diligent in following the commission. And Lord, he trusted, radically trusted in you for his safety. He responded to you in worship and he saw that you were moving the king's heart in this process. Lord, for us, as we face the challenges, the many challenges of living in a secular state, following you as our God and King, Lord, the King above all gods, the King above all governments, the one true King, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us when it's hard, when we just find it hard to live as believers in a state that is not turned towards you. And Lord, help us to be wise as we follow laws of the government, Lord, to consider carefully how these fit within your commands. Thank you for the wonderful teaching we have from Jesus, from Peter and from Paul. Lord, help us, as Ezra did, to fear you even while we honour the government around us. Guide us, Lord Jesus, we pray by your spirit. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude our worship